Well, it's good to be together. It's, it's awesome that we can come together and hear the word. You might think, well, that's something I could do on my own. Like I could, I could stay home and watch a, a video or I could stay home and listen to a podcast, listen to a sermon online. But, and you could, and you probably should at some point, but there's something about coming together and growing together. Um, in fact, you know, the scripture makes it clear that that's one of the pillars of the, of the church, not just the early church, but all of us, that, that uh, we devote ourselves to the word and to prayer, that we devote ourselves to one another, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, to the word, to prayer, to teaching. And there's something different about coming together and worshiping. You know what I mean? Like, worship is, is not a solo thing. Sometimes it is. But it's also a very corporate thing. So that's why we sing songs together and, and we lift our hands together because it's important that we worship together. And that's, that's kind of the blueprint for heaven. If you've, if you've read what happens around the throne of God, it's a crowd of people. There's always a crowd of people. It doesn't say there's like two people hanging out. There's always like myriads and myriads, crowds of people singing, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So this is ordained by God. And in fact, worship is not just singing. Worship is not just music. We know worship is all about life. Life is worship. Your job is worship if you do it as unto the Lord. But also, Jesus said that teaching and receiving teaching is worship. Because he said to the Pharisees, in vain you worship me, teaching as doctrines the traditions of men. So you've worshiped me incorrectly by teaching the wrong things. Which tells me there's a right way to worship God by teaching his word in, in his spirit, in his power. And I think it's a form of worship to receive the word as well. Just like you receive anything from God, as we open up our hearts to God, that's worship. That's part of worship. And it's important that we do that together. In the past few weeks and past couple months, we've been talking about family from God's perspective. We spent a whole bunch of time talking about God, embracing God as our Father, embracing um, each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and knowing what it means to be part of the family of God, with the goal that at some point we would begin to talk to some about some of the human relationships that God has put in place. So we're still going to talk big picture, but let's get a little specific today. Uh, because today I want to talk to you a little bit about marriage. Now, I understand not everybody in here is married. Not everybody in here wants to be married. And that's okay. That's good. That doesn't mean you should check out. In fact, sometimes it's hard to preach about marriage because half of the people are like, well, I'm not married. Got no plans to be married right away. And then the other half are like, yeah, I read all the books already. There's nothing you can tell me. You can tell me I don't already know. Well, let me tell you, I still read the same scriptures I've been reading since I was a little kid, and I still get something from it every time. The trick is, if you let the Holy Spirit teach you today, even if I do a bad job, the Holy Spirit will teach you something. Isn't that nice? So it doesn't all depend on me. It's the, all the weight's not on my shoulders to bring our good message you've never heard before. The Holy Spirit is so good. That if I preach the lamest message you've ever heard, he can still teach you something today. Isn't that good news for you? So it takes some pressure off my back. But I'll tell you something. We're all going to learn something. And I really believe that no matter what stage you are in life, whether you're a widow, whether you're married, whether you're single and you plan to stay single or single and you want to get married, all of these circumstances and more... We're going to hear from the Spirit of God today. And since we're a body, these are things we should talk about. And even if you're not married, you should know what the Scripture says because the Bible says, and we're going to talk about this today, that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. So whether or not you marry another human being, you are part of his bride. You're part of the church, which is the bride of Christ. So today we're going to talk about covenant, what it means. We had an opportunity uh, yesterday to witness a, a marriage, a wedding right here in our church. It was Cody and Sarah McKenzie. They got married. It was a wonderful thing. And, you know, every time I get to do a wedding, it's always exciting for me to talk about some of the, the simple and basic but powerful truths about how God ordained this union, how it was something that God created. 
We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 18, but I just want to talk to you a little bit as, as we're setting up about some foundational thoughts that we should keep in mind. And one of those foundational thoughts is that God had the idea of marriage, not us. That God makes marriage happen, not us. You might think, well, no, I made it happen. I went on ChristianMingle.com, and I put my stuff in, and I picked a mate. I booked a facility. I got a preacher. I made this happen. But, you know, it's like, it's like a baby. You can, you, can, you can, you know, make everything happen so that you have a baby. You can, you know, you did, you, you, you got married, you had a baby, all of that. You might think that was your doing, but it was God that breathed life into that child. Yeah. Same thing with marriage. You can, you can go through all the motions, but it's God that forms a union. There's a miracle that takes place in which two people become one person, and you just couldn't make that happen. And the government can't make that happen. We're blessed to be in a nation that, that lets a preacher like me perform a marriage and then fill out some paperwork. And while I am here acting first and foremost as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, and saying in the eyes of God, these are the vows we're saying, I, I also get to be an agent of the government and fill out some paperwork, send it off, and you're like legally married. That's cool. It's cool that we live in a country that lets us do that. But even if they didn't, even if the government says, we don't care about your sham religion, we, we, don't, we don't acknowledge it as real, it's real before God. Now, while we live here, we should abide by the laws of the land, so we make sure we fill that out. And we've had, I mean, it's tricky living in Lloydminster. We've had a couple of weddings where somebody brought the wrong license. They brought a license for Alberta because they lived in Alberta, but we were here in Saskatchewan. One wedding, we rushed over. It was a Friday night. Spiro and Tina were in the, the audience. It was a smaller, it was a smaller wedding, and so we were able to do this, but uh, five minutes before the wedding, I'm handed the license, and it's an Alberta license. And I said, we can't do an Alberta wedding in Saskatchewan. I know we're just like a few meters from the border, but legally this is not Alberta. So we went to Spiro and Tina and said, like, is there any way we can use the restaurant? And we ran over there and, and Maria, <laughs> Maria like turned a, a third of the restaurant into this wedding chapel. It was beautiful. Put up <laughs> dividers so the, rest of the, so the rest of the people eating spaghetti weren't looking at us. And... <laughs> It was great. I mean, it looked like it was supposed to be that way. We went in and the chairs were set up. There were candles. It was prettier than the church. I was, I was impressed. And we, we, the wedding was there. Because we believe that wherever God is and people are gathered in his name, it's a holy place. Yes, that's right. So I like getting married in churches. But, you know, you can get married in the forest. And if God's there, if Jesus is there, then that's a holy place. That's a cathedral. Because he's there. If he's there. This is his church. We're his church. So, you know, God's at work. And as much as it's a legal thing, it is first and foremost a miracle and a spiritual act. It's a covenant. So long before the government ever recognized these things, God did. In fact, we're going to see what Jesus says, but uh, it's interesting that when, I mean, almost always when marriage is brought up in the New Testament, we're pointed back to the beginning. And that's, that's important. Because as, as, as believers, we should always look at why God created something, how he created it, because we recognize culture has come a long way, and often the original things that God's created, mankind has twisted in some way. But if you look at why God created it, and how he created it, you, you find perfection again. And you know that in Christ... Everything that's been messed up and broken and twisted is being redeemed and made right again. So as much as the world twists our idea of love, when we are born again and we embrace Jesus and we embrace his message and we embrace his spirit, love is corrected and perfected in our own hearts. As much as all of these things are twisted, when we turn to him, he makes those things right again. 
So we understand, and I know you've heard me say this, probably if you've come to a wedding here, you know we've said this, that marriage was created before there was any sin in the world. Marriage was not a, uh uh-oh, they're they're doing stuff, we we better fix this, we better give them something. Uh, What if we, you know, say one man can pick one woman and stay together? That'll work. It wasn't a stopgap. It wasn't a, uh, uh uh-oh, this will keep them from sin. Marriage was created in the beginning before mankind fell. In fact, if you'll remember, God looked at all of his creation and he said, this is good. And good, that word good does not mean, yeah, this is nice. It means it's perfect. It's without flaw. Mm -hmm. Then he says... It's not good that man is alone. Now, let's, let's just correct something before it goes any further. Because <laughs> some of you are going, uh-oh, it's bad that I'm single. No, it's not. I'll give you two of the people that spoke the most about marriage in the New Testament are Jesus and Paul. Both of them said, it's a good thing to be single. It's a good thing to be married. It's a good thing to be single. The, chapter, the, the section we're about to read, Jesus says... There are some of you who have chosen to be single for the kingdom of God. And I give you a round of applause. It doesn't say that in my translation. It's probably in the message. (laughs) Paul says, I'm single and I wish you all were too. So when it says it's not good that man should be alone, it doesn't mean it's not good if you're not married. Because in fact, even if you're not married, it's not good that you're alone. God brought us into a family. God put us together with other people. And the Bible says in, in the book of Psalms, it says he puts the single people into a family. Yeah. And so he brought us into a family. So, you know, if you say, I've chosen to be single for the kingdom of God, or as Jesus said, sometimes just people make you single. And there's, there's some facts about that that don't sound so pretty. But he says, sometimes it's not your choice that you're single. That's okay. We're all part of the family of God. We'll talk about that. In fact, we're going we're gonna to spend a whole service talking about being single. And uh, so, you know what, guys? If you're here saying, I don't want to listen to a sermon about marriage, don't worry, you'll get your shot, and everyone else will have to listen to a sermon about being single. <laughs> but if we open up our hearts, God will teach us through all of this. Yeah. And we are all part of the family of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you parents who have kids, you don't say, I don't want to hear anybody talk about what it's like to be a child. I'm not a child anymore. No, you, you're, you have children as part of your family. So you want to know what it's like for them. You want to know what it's like to raise a kid. You know, if we're part of this family, we care for one another. We want to know how to pray for one another. And here's the truth. Every human relationship has its roots in a divine relationship. So everything we learn about marriage is going to teach us something about Jesus. So whether or not you're married, you're going to learn something about covenant today. We're going to learn something about the covenant with Jesus Christ, and that matters. I want to read you this from Matthew chapter 18. Sorry, Matthew chapter 19. You knew I was going to Matthew 19, didn't you? All of you Bible nerds knew it was Matthew 19. You knew all along, and you were so polite you didn't correct me, and I appreciate that. Matthew 19. Jesus is preaching to a group of people and he's, he's been talking to his disciples about who's great in the kingdom. He's been talking to them about, um, the, the, he's talking to them about lost sheep and how he goes and finds them. So he's, he's, he's speaking many parables. He's giving them some deep teaching. But it says in chapter 19, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, why would they ask this question? It's not because they were eager for knowledge, because the Bible says they were testing him. So they're trying to catch him because they know he's going to make enemies no matter what he says. Because there's some of them that say, well, we shouldn't. There's some of them that say we should. Some of them are divorced. And it seems like every time they come to him, They're trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and the people that are following him. So they ask him this question. They think it's going to trap him. They think it's going to trip him up. And in fact, if you wanted to ask a question that you felt would trip somebody up today, you might ask the same question. 
Because let's just face it, there's a big chunk of the church that's gone through divorce, that's gone through the pains of separation. You know what it's like. And so there's already that, that feeling of when we start to talk about it, some people just get tense. Like, uh-oh, is he going to come down on me? Is he going to tell me I did something wrong? Is he going to tell me I did something right? And I think it would just be healthy for us to just listen to what Jesus says and let him speak to us right now because this is what he responds. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So here's what we see. From the beginning, this is a miracle. You did not join yourself to someone else. You played a part in it. If you're married today, you played a role in it. You had to make that agreement. You had to make that covenant. But it is only God that can join two people together. And God joins them together and takes two people and makes them one flesh. Now, that's a dramatic thought. That's big. That's, that's one of those things that hurts your brain to think about. I mean, you ever, we've talked about this before, but have you ever tried to picture what, it, what eternity is like? Or the fact that God has always existed and always will exist? That no one created God? He, does have no, he has no beginning. He has no end. Have you ever tried to think about that? What happens? You, your brain goes back to the, you know, the, the spinning wheel. It freezes. It it snaps, something goes back to the blue screen of death, like you just can't, it says error, don't think anymore, go to sleep for a little bit, you know? Because there are, these are what the scripture calls mysteries. In fact, marriage is described as a mystery. And a mystery is not something you'll never know. A mystery is something that can only be understood by the Spirit of God and revealed by God. What does the Bible say? Daniel said it, I know a God that reveals mysteries. Joseph said it. It's, it's all throughout the New Testament that he says, behold, I declare to you a mystery. What does that mean? That means that there are things that with your natural mind you can't understand. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 talks about this. It talks about the fact that a natural brain could not understand the things of God that you will trip over some things. So he says in 1 Corinthians 1 that Jews are going to trip over the fact that Jesus was, was crucified, that he was hung on a tree. It's going to be a stumbling block for them. Greeks are going to trip on some things. He says all of us are going to trip over some things that your brain will not be able to get past except by the Spirit of God. He goes on and he says that there are things that a natural mind will not get. And God created it so that we would need his wisdom and we would need to embrace some things that seem even foolish to us. So let me tell you, we could not write a book about marriage and really talk about God's design for marriage and the supernatural power that's in that marriage and give it to an unbeliever and all of it perfectly makes sense. There might be some things that are like, oh, this is practical, this is helpful. We should listen to one another. We should be forgiving. We shouldn't go to bed angry. But there are some things that are impossible for a natural mind to understand. Come on now, come on now. That's what the Bible says. Right. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. So today... If you try to approach this with just your understanding, just your brain, and not let your spirit teach your brain, not let the Holy Spirit teach you some things, if you're just trying to get this up here, you'll trip over some things and you won't get past it. It'll be a stumbling block for you. There's things a natural mind cannot understand. They're too great for us. Can you fully, can anybody here fully explain to me how God has always existed? And like make it just fully make sense. No, because it, it's like without faith, it, it's, it's, it's impossible to comprehend on this side of eternity. But by the Spirit of God, we understand these things. It says by faith, we understand that God created the world out of nothing. You know, the old argument, how did the world begin? Well, there was a big bang. It was all these things. okay. So it came out of nothing. Well, no, there were chemicals present and there was this present at the time and they came together. Okay, where did those things come from? Well, they came from this. Okay, where did that come from? Because 
You can't just have something out of nothing. Unless you introduce a being so supreme and powerful that has existed before anything else existed that was creating these things. But then you say, well, where did he come from? Oh, my head hurts again. Right? So there's a certain point where we have to step and say, God is above all of these things. And there's some things that my brain can never understand without him. Marriage is one of those things. It's described as a mystery. It is a mystery that God took two people and made them one flesh. So you might say, well, well, I wasn't saved when I got married. So what about that? Do I need to get married again? And the Bible actually addresses that question and says, no. It says, however you enter the kingdom of God, stay that way. You're good. That there's somehow, even the unbelievers that enter into covenant together, God is in it. Even if they don't know God was there. Even if they got married in a Las Vegas chapel, God was there. And I've never been in a Las Vegas chapel, but I'm pretty sure it's not a place that you'd expect to find God. Maybe Elvis, but not God. But he's in it. Somehow he does it. That's amazing. So it says here that God started it. What God has joined. See, here's the first error that we step into with our natural mind. We think we did it. So if you think you did it, you think you can undo it, right? Well, I did it. I I mean, I signed the papers. I can sign some more papers and make it go away. But he says, no, God did it. Let whatever God has done, don't let anyone separate. They said to him, well, then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? That that does sound terribly old-fashioned, doesn't it? (laughs) The woman's like, wait, I just burned the eggs. Give her a certificate of divorce. Send her away. In fact, in the Old Testament, there were a lot of really simple things you could divorce over. Like, real simple things that you might say, that's not that big of a deal. But a guy could say, yeah, I'm done with you. And Jesus says, it was because of the hardness, your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. So let me, let's just understand this. Sometimes God lets humans do things because of the hardness of their heart. A great example of that is in the Old Testament when they said, we want a king. He said, a king's a bad idea. No, we want one. He won't be nice to you. We want one. And so God finally gave them what they asked for. It wasn't God's plan, but he gave them what they asked for. So a lot of people will say, well, doesn't, isn't, it God, isn't everything that happens God's will? Well, the scripture tells us sometimes God permits things because of the hardness of your own heart. It could be different if you had softened your heart. So he said, your heart was hard. This wasn't God's perfect plan, but God allowed it because you were at a place where you were hardened in heart. You wonder why there were slaves in Moses' time. It's not because God wanted people to have slaves. It's because it was the hardness of their own heart. In fact, the Israelites' rules about slaves were were probably the most liberal and, and easy for slaves than any other nation that they were around. God gave slaves rights. God gave them the, the ability for legal recourse. He, he told them you can't mistreat these people, but God did not design slavery. So it was, it was God moving people from step to step and saying, all right, here's where you're at. I'm going to move you here. And then I'm going to move you here. But by the time we get to the New Testament, that's being phased out. So Jesus said, it's because of the hardness of your own heart. Then he said, and I say to you, I said, but from the beginning, it's not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So here, listen to what the disciples say to this. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. <laughs> Do you ever hear that response? Uh, better not to get married, boys. This is, uh, that just sounds a little too heavy for us. Can you imagine have you ever thought that even the disciples thought that was difficult? Like, I don't want to get handcuffed into a relationship like, oh, no. You're saying God's joined us together and we shouldn't separate? Oh, if it's like that, it's better not to marry. I want you to pay attention every time the disciples balk at something Jesus said. Like when he said, it's, it's difficult 
for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. They said, well, then who could be saved? And he said, well, it's impossible with man. But even if it's impossible with man, it's, all things are possible with God. So the disciples echo our own thoughts sometimes. That's good that the writers leave them in there. Because then it lets you know you're not alone to say, what? And anytime you see the disciples freak out about something, it's usually something we all freak out about. It's usually your natural mind hitting the rock of God's supernatural plan. If you were sitting there during the Sermon on the Mount, you'd be like, I'm out. Forget this. Love my enemy. If a guy asks me to go a mile, I'll go too. If he asks for my shirt, I'll give him, ask for my coat, I'll give him my shirt too. No, forget this. This is just too weird. But what Jesus is saying is there are things I'm telling you that are impossible for you, but they're going to be completely possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. That these things are impossible for you, but they're possible with God. Why was it different in Moses' day than it was when Jesus was preaching? Because he was about to set them free from their own sin. He was about to set them free from their bondage. He was about to give them his own spirit. So he said, your hardness of heart won't be an issue anymore. Because when I give you my spirit, I will take your heart that is hard as a rock. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to anoint you so that you can do what you couldn't do before. So we'll still read the words of Jesus and say, who could do that? It still hits me like that. I go, who can do that? But he says, it's impossible for you, but it's not impossible for God. Let God do this. The disciples say, well, then it's not, we'd rather not get married. We'd just rather, I mean, Peter's already married. We know James took a wife. We don't know if he, he, he likely did that before this. So they're probably regretting some things. Right? You know, like, oh, man. Jesus is painting a new reality for them. Hey, I like being married. But somehow they feel like, I liked it until you told me I had to do this forever. (laughs) I don't like this anymore. (laughs) There's something about covenant that changes us. Because when we create, when we enter into covenant and God's part of that covenant, it's not our strength that keeps the covenant going. Come on, come on. It's God's power. That's the amazing thing. What's the scripture say? A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And we talk about that in reference to marriage, it's, but it's in reference to other things as well. But we talk about it in reference to marriage because it's two people coming into union. And we talk about the third cord being God himself. We know this. When we obey the Lord and we invite him into a union, he carries the weight. Now, it's, you, it's just like anything. If you try to pick up the weight again, you can try. It'll be difficult, but you can try. But he's asking for the weight. He's saying, I'm a God of covenant. If you made a covenant with me, I'm part of it. I'll make it happen. I'll see that it's done. What does the scripture say? Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It is a God who is at work in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. We've got to get used to the fact that anything we're doing for the Lord, he's doing it through us. We're not doing it for him. He's doing it through us. Marriage. You can't do it without them. You know, I said, well, I knew people who were married for 75 years and they weren't born again. Well, well done. And I applaud that. I believe God was in that union. But I believe as a believer, there's something you have access to that no one else does. The Spirit of God. One of my mentors and somebody I looked up to said to me before I got married, he said this, he said, Jonathan, you have to believe in covenant of marriage. You have to believe in the covenant of marriage more than you believe in your spouse. And I said, well, can you say that again? Because that doesn't make sense to me. He said, you have to believe in the covenant of marriage more than you believe in the other person. Because if all your faith in that other person, they'll let you down. They'll, they'll, they'll be times where they don't meet your expectations. But if your faith, if, if you're putting the weight on the covenant itself then you're saying, I believe in the covenant more than I even believe in that person. And I believe God is able to keep us together. And we are going to stay together because we've entered into covenant. 
Now, there are people, you know, people part of our family here, and you might say, well, I've been divorced. What does that mean for me? You know, thank God that whatever we've been through and whatever's in our past, God is able to clean us, wash us, and bring us into his freedom. Now, listen, that doesn't mean go get divorced right now by any stretch. But if you have, have you brought that to the Lord? Come on. What does he do? He, he redeems all things. He makes all things clean. You know, and I, maybe some of you got remarried. I don't believe God wants you to break one covenant to keep another, right? But come on, if you're married now, there's no marriage that's beyond the grace of God. I heard a pastor that I admire very greatly. He said to his congregation, he said, whether you married the right person or the wrong person, then he said, let me tell you, you all married the right person. Once you married them, they, were, they became the right person. He said, you all married the wrong person too. Don't worry about it. That's just the way life goes. If you accept that, because here's the problem. If you start thinking there's one person for you and only one person for you, then, then what happens is later in life, now I believe God's got something for you. If you'll listen to him, he's got someone picked out for you. If you're not married, God's got someone for you. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we go back and I've heard preachers, and I hate that this is preachers, but I've heard preachers say, well, I found out I married the wrong woman. and God had a more perfect soulmate for me and I, I just found her later. Forget that. Come on. Just making up excuses so you can go cheat on your wife. That's dumb. Like, don't say that. Whoever you married, God can make that work. God can make it. God can redeem them, heal them, redeem your relationship, heal your relationship. And uh, I mean, really, the same guy that told me to believe in covenant told me this. He said, you're not, he said, you're not marrying somebody you want to spend the rest of your life with. He said, you're marrying somebody you can grow with and change with because you won't be the same person in five years. That's right. You won't be the same person in 10 years. I heard one guy say, and, and I thought it was intelligent, he said, he said, my wife's been married to five different men. <laughs> That's a nice thing. He said, it was, every one of them was me. But she's been married to five different men over the years because I'm not the same guy as a 20-year-old that said I do. We change, we grow. So if you're just saying, well, I'm so in love with who you are. I'm just, oh, I feel butterflies every time you call my name. That'll change. They'll change. You'll change. (laughs) Right? If your identity is in those little things, your identity, you're going to be without an anchor in the middle of the ocean. You've got to tie your identity to covenant. When I tie my identity to covenant, see, my identity in Christ is tied to a covenant with Christ. It's not tied to how I feel about him or how I think he feels about me on any given day. I have a covenant with Jesus, therefore I am always his child. Therefore I am always part of his family. Therefore I am always a saint in Christ. So my identity is tied to something that goes beyond how I feel or how my day is going or how the year's been. I am tied to something bigger than myself. So when I tie myself to a covenant and when husband and wife tie themselves to a covenant of marriage, I'm saying no matter how much we change, no matter how much you look different, no matter how much I act different or smell different or whatever, we are going to be together because we've tied ourselves to a covenant that we're one and God is in the union. You know, the Bible says this and it says it real well in the ESV. In the Old Testament, it says, did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit to dwell in them, to dwell in the union? Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit to dwell in their union? Hear that. God made us one and put his spirit in the union. That's what binds us together. So when Jesus says, didn't he say a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife or hold fast to his wife? That literal word means to be glued together. And God is the one that's doing the gluing. God is the one that's doing the joining. But you've got to make the decision. God will do the work, but you do the decision, right? We know that. Everything we receive by, by everything we receive from God through Christ, that's grace. But we have to receive grace by faith, right? Jesus died for everyone, but is everyone saved? This is a simple question, guys. What are you reading in your spare time? No, not everybody's saved. Well, yes, I think that it's all, well, all roads to lead to the same cabin in the woods. No, I mean, we're, we're not all saved. 
Because if you believe that, there's a lot of scripture you're going to have to skip over. But everybody has the opportunity to be saved. That's right. Everybody has the invitation to be saved. So here's this. The grace was given and, ex- and, and extended to all, but it's only by faith that we receive it. Come on now, come on now. So we enter in. God has said, I'm the one that will do the joining. But we have a part to play too. What does it say? You hold fast to your wife. Right. Wife, you hold fast to your husband. I'll do the work to make that stick, but you got to choose. I'm going to cleave to them. I'm going to hold fast to them. Now, remember, God would never tell you to hold fast to something if it just naturally always stays next to you. If you're told to hold fast to something, that means there's something that's trying to tear it out of your hands. And I'm not talking about people trying to steal your girl. I'm talking about the temptation to divide and separate. See, the scripture says God hates divorce, and some of us who aren't married says, well, or some of us who are married, never been divorced, or some of you who say, I've never been married, it's not an issue. Well, you know what? There's divorce in the church, whether you've been married or not. Mm-hmm. And that's when we allow God, that we allow ourselves to separate what God's joined us to, and we separate from one another, and we let little issues become bigger than the grace of God in our lives. So you, you know, there's divorce in the church that has nothing to do with marriage. It's a spirit of divorce that divides people and separates them. Yes. Separates people from, the, from, from their relationship with Jesus and relationship with other Christians. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with whether or not you said vows to them. It has to do with us putting issues above the covenant that we have. Mm-hmm. Here he says, so God's joined these together. Don't let anyone separate it. Then he says this. So they said, well, who should get married? This is ridiculous. I don't want to get married. And he said, not all men can accept this statement. Not everybody can accept what I just said. That's, that's kind of a funny thing for Jesus to say. Not everybody can accept this. This is a big deal. But he says, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's explain this in the most delicate way we can. But a eunuch is somebody who, the the Greek word here that's used is one who is alone in bed. So one who is is single. But now in Jesus' time when this was written, that makes sense when you're talking about somebody who's born that way. Somebody who's just from from birth, they just don't want to get married. So that's fine. He said, some people are made eunuchs by men. What in the world is that talking about? In Jesus' day and age, some people were physically castrated for their their job. So Philip witnessed to the Ethiopian man in the chariot, and he said he was a eunuch because he was in the court of Candace. In order for him to serve in the queen's court, he had to be castrated. That's crazy. I don't even want to think about that. It's bugging me right now. I don't like this. But it's true. Did you know that in the old covenant law, you weren't a person that was mutilated in that way, was unclean? And Jesus all of a sudden gave them a place. And Philip, God told him, run to the chariot and talk to that guy. In the old covenant law, he would have been unclean. But what did, what did Jesus say to Peter in the vision? What I've made clean, don't ever call unclean again. These people that have been kind of pushed to the edge of society. You may not know it. We love Daniel. We love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Did you know when they were brought from, uh, from Israel and brought, uh, brought from Judah into the, into the kingdom of Babylon, they were all castrated? That's why Daniel's single all his life. They were forcibly castrated as captives, and God had a place for them. So Jesus says, some people are born and they just don't have an attraction and that's fine. They don't have a desire for marriage. That's fine. Some of them are forced into it. It wasn't their choice, but they were forced into it. That's good. He said, some of them chose, and it doesn't mean they castrated themselves, it just means they chose to be single for the kingdom of heaven. There are people probably in this room right now that you chose to be single for the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're married, too late, you can't choose that now. <laughs> You're like, that's an option? 
that's the easiest way to divorce my wife I ever heard of. It's for the kingdom of heaven, baby. It's not my fault. Doing it for Jesus. No, too late for you. There might be some young people, might be some old people who you've been single and you say, you know what? I'm single and I'm serving the Lord and I feel I can get more done single. Paul said the problem with getting married is you got to think about worldly things every now and then. I mean, I love my wife and she's more help to me than anything. But, you know, I can't just go off on the mission field without her for, you know, six months. I can't just say, well, I'm not going to, we're all fasting for, you know, two months and, and, you know, uh, I'm not going to provide any food for you. No, I've got to think about them now, my wife and my child. So I'm tied to the world in a way. When I was single, I could fly all over the place. I could do a lot of things that I can't do now. Now, I like being married, and I think God wanted me to be married, so it's been better for me than anything. But some of you might say, I think God called me to be single. You should do that then. And you never should let anybody, believer or otherwise, make you feel like you're less of a, of a Christian or less of a person because you're not married. That's right. Jesus said, you did it for the kingdom of heaven? Bravo. Amen. Well done. He said, he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Why? Because it takes faith. If you can receive it by faith, then receive it, and the power of God will be there to get it done. Not everybody could receive by faith that Jesus would heal a blind man. But if the blind man could receive it, he'd be healed. What you can accept that God says, if you will sit here and accept what God says... It may be tripping your brain. You might say, this is old-fashioned. Or this is just, oh, this is just too religious. Oh, all of this. If you'll receive that God says it, he'll get it done. If you resist it, you'll be on your own. You'll do it yourself and see what happens. But I'll tell you, if you can just say, okay, God, I trust you here. Apparently, you're part of this. There are some things I don't understand. But if you say it, I believe it. Then God will get it done. The book of Ephesians says this in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole part about marriage. I'm just I'm going to get skip to the end because I want to, I want you to see that. But I encourage you read all of Ephesians five and six. That's your homework. Go back and read the whole thing because it talks about family. But really, don't read it in isolation. Read it by acknowledging what happened in Ephesians one, two, three, and four. Because Ephesians one through four has told you who you are in Christ. So it enables you to hear about marriage in a different way. Because you don't hear about it as you just need to try hard. You hear about your place in Christ. And it changes everything. But let's skip to the end of Ephesians 5. Let's read, um, actually, you know what? Let's read. Verse 18. We're going to read more than I thought we'd read, but I think it'll be good. Ephesians 5, 18 says, And don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation or that's wastefulness. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Now, it says be subject in mind, but that's in italics. He's picking up from the verse before. So some people have used this verse as a way for men to dominate women, but you'd have to ignore the verse that came before that says be subject to one another. So if I'm using this as a way to say, I'm always right, wife, bring me some bacon, then I have to be okay with you saying, I'm always right, Jonathan, bring me some bacon. Because it says, be subject to one another in the reverence for Christ. So if I'm not willing to apply it to myself, I certainly can't apply it to my wife. Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife for the union, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a hard thing to hear. But he's saying, you need to give yourself up for your wife. Put her first. Give herself up for her just as Christ gave himself for you. 
in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is what Jesus does. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. Now, if there's a great mystery, he's saying there's a lot of opportunity for you to trip over this. In fact, when I was reading it, I'm sure some of you were going, nope. Uh-uh. I don't, I don't really get that. I don't believe it. Well, he says this is a great mystery. If you'll let God reveal it to you, he'll, un, he'll unfold it to you. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see it that she respects or reverences her husband. So there's honor, respect, love going both ways. Just because he doesn't say it, well, the wife should love the husband just as much as the husband loves the wife. There should be respect for one another. Is that right? There should be honor for one another. And when we see this, we see that this is an image of Christ in the church. And let me tell you something. As we're kind of wrapping this up, I want you to hear that one of the purposes of marriage is to display the glory of God. Yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. It's meant to show the world what God is like. Yeah. That's, one of our, that's our reason for existence is to display the glory of God, to have relationship with God and display his glory to the world. Now, from the beginning, it says that he made them and he joined them together. And he said they should stay together and they should be together. And the last thing he says about marriage before the fall is they were naked and unashamed. That's the last thing he says about marriage before the fall, before mankind sinned. They were naked and they were unashamed because they themselves were clothed with the glory of God. I think, it's, I think it's two parts to that. I think, number one, they're clothed with the glory of God. I think, number two, there's perfect love. Mm-hmm. And where there's perfect love, you are unashamed. That's right. That's right. Because whatever you feel that are your flaws and your imperfections, perfect love covers them all. Perfect love heals them all. One of the greatest things about being married, I will tell you this from my own experience, is to be known and to be loved at the same time. Because when you're dating, when you're courting, whatever you did, whatever you called it, but when you are first seeing this, this person and you're spending a little bit of time together, you are hiding as much as you can. <laughs> you're just, you know, like, <laughs> you are not, you're not burping together. You're not, you know, there's a lot of things you, some of you guys, like when you were with your wife, like you're like, I think this is how I use a fork. I'm going to try. You know, you did everything to impress this person. You didn't air your dirty laundry. But you all know that doesn't, you can't keep that up. You can't keep that up. When you wake up in the morning, they, you have bad breath. Your hair is messy. They see who you are. And what do you know? They still like you. They still love you. They still want you. That's one of the most freeing things in the world. (laughs) Tia could write a book that would really embarrass me. (laughs) But she loves me and she likes me and I I the same for her. That is so freeing. That's the amazing thing about God. He knows us. He loves us. He sees us. But he still wants us and still loves us. There's nothing we can hide from him. I can't hide anything from God. And yet he still loves me. When you come into the family of God, that's the most freeing thing. Because you come in and you, you want to hide who you are because they won't really like me if they knew me. But you find out that perfect love takes judgment away, takes fear away. Perfect love covers a multitude of sins. That love embraces you. And you find out, I fit. I, I find it amazing when people start to accept, these people love me. But they know me and they still love me. That's one of the most freeing things in marriage. And it's one of the things that demonstrates us the covenant love of Jesus Christ. 
that he loves us and he will not divorce his bride. He won't divorce his bride. He won't do it. You're his. And whether you like it or not, on that day where you're presented, we're presented as the church, we're going to be perfect. Perfect. I said this on Wednesday night. I think it was Wednesday night. Might have been on Sunday. But some people think that that means we need to, we need to get our act together because he's looking for a church without spot or blemish. But without spot, without blemish, literally without any wrinkles, means there's no imperfections of, any, of even the most minute. And no matter how hard, how hard we try, we will never get there on our own. This has got to be a work of his blood, his righteousness, him doing it. This doesn't mean, guys, we need to get our act together because he's looking for a church without spot or blemish. He didn't say he's looking for a church that's pretty much got it together. He's looking for a church where you can examine them and find nothing, no flaws. In order for that to happen in our own strength, we have to get rid of all of you. (laughs) Right? You're all kicked out. I'm sorry. Church would be perfect without people. But there'd be no church without people. So there's your paradox. So it's either all him or not him at all. I say it's all him. He's washing us. Now, does that mean that we're growing and we're becoming more and more like him every day? Absolutely. But it means that it's going to be supernatural. He's not going to kick his bride out. He's not going to say, I forget you. I don't want you anymore. One of the most wonderful stories in the Bible is also one of the most heartbreaking. Back in the Old Testament, God used prophets as object lessons. How many of you would like that? Like Ezekiel has to lie on his side for, you know, several hundred days, eating bread cooked over dung to show Israel something. Like, couldn't you just tell him, God? Couldn't you just paint him a picture? No, you're my picture. You're the movie. Uh, Jeremiah has to walk around naked for a while. But Hosea probably had the toughest of all of them. God tells him, I want you to marry a prostitute. Okay. Well, that's not impossible because we say, well, God can take anybody and make them clean. The hard part is, Tells, her to ma- tells them to marry somebody that's not just going to turn their life around. They're going to go back to it over and over again. So Hosea marries this woman. Her name is Gomer. That's a, that's a deal breaker already. <laughs> right? Uh, sorry. Golly. You know, Gomer. Right? Marries a girl named Gomer and says, okay, you were a prostitute, but I love you. And you're clean now. And she goes, thanks, dude. And then goes back to it and like starts cheating on him with other men, even doing it for money. And he's like, okay, God, so I gave it a shot, you know, is this over? And God says, take her back. Takes her back. She does it again. God says, take her back. And Hosea is like, it's breaking my heart every time this happens. He says, that's what happens to me when my people keep going to idols. And every time I will take them back because they're mine. And I love them. And Hosea, as much as it breaks your heart, this is what I go through. And this is how much I love my people. Let the people see you. And when they see you, they're going to see how much I love them. When we walk around in our marriages, when we walk around in this covenant family that you've been made a part of, the world is seeing the covenant that God made with us. And they're seeing the glory of God. So when, when mankind sinned, They lost the glory of God. What does the Bible say? All have sinned and come short of what? The glory of God. We stopped displaying the glory of God. What happened when we stopped displaying the glory of God? We hid. What happened when we were confronted with our own sin? Adam immediately blamed that covenant partner. It's her fault. It's your fault and it's her fault, but it's not my fault. Because when we step out of the glory of God and we step out of covenant and we step out of the grace of God, then we start blaming each other and we put a divide between each other. And we think we have the right to say it's your fault, it's God's fault, but it's not my fault. But covenant love does not say whose fault is it. Covenant love covers. Covenant love embraces. Covenant love holds fast. And so they sow leaves together to try to cover themselves in their nakedness. 
What did God do? God gave them animal skins to cover themselves. Why is that important? Animal skins just better than leaves? Yeah, but the real reason is without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In order for those animal skins, something had to die. He was showing them that there is the covenant that I'm going to make with you and the blood is going to cover you and the blood is going to atone for you and the blood is going to take your nakedness and make it right again. And now we stand before God naked and unashamed because perfect love has cast out all of our fear because fear involves punishment and we say I deserve punishment I have punishment coming my way this is what I've earned and he says as he is so are you in this world so don't fear the day of judgment because my love has covered you and my love hasn't just said I'm going to overlook this or it doesn't matter to me anymore my love actually took your sin and placed it upon myself so that your sin would no longer be your sin. It would be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. That is covenant love. And when we enter into covenant with one another, God doesn't say, give it your best shot. He says, I'm entering into this covenant with you. And this is impossible for you. And it feels impossible sometimes, doesn't it? Some of you have unbelieving spouses and it feels impossible. You get fired up at church, you lift your hands, you praise God, and you go home and that person ridicules you for it or or doesn't want to talk about it. And you say, how do I deal with this? And God, don't you see, wouldn't it be easier if I didn't have this? And he says, that person is being sanctified by you. And if you will keep trusting in me, I'm doing a work in them. The scripture says that flat out. Trust me. And he says, you live out what you live out the glory of God in yourself. You love them with the love that I've loved you. And he says this. This is a promise in the word. You'll win them over without a word. Yes. Praise God. That means if you've got an unbelieving spouse, it's not your nagging that's going to bring them to Jesus. It's the glory of God working through you. Because I said sin separated us from the glory of God, but Jesus brought us back to the glory of God. The Bible says the same God that said light be when there was nothing but darkness has caused light to shine in our hearts to show the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we now show God's glory. We now demonstrate God's glory. And I want to tell you, marriage is a means in which God will show his glory to the world. So we haven't talked about a lot of the specifics of marriage today. This hasn't been a marriage workshop. But I wanted to first paint a picture of the big picture of the covenant that God has made with us. And he will not break it. And he will not go back on it. And if you can trust God, God will be in that union. There is an anointing to be married. There's anointing to be a parent. There's an anointing to be single. Because whatever we do, the Spirit of God is joining with us. And he's doing things that are impossible. So who could get married, the disciples say. Who could be saved, they say at another place. And he says, it's impossible for you. But with God, all things are possible. And I believe this. And I know there's nobody's marriage that's perfect. And if you think that you just came to a group of people who have it together, we all have times where you want to bolt. And that's when you have to hold fast. Hold fast. What does the Bible say about his promises? Hold fast to his word. Hold fast to his promises. You wouldn't have to hold fast if there wasn't all of these things pulling you apart. It's like holding fast to the life raft in the middle of a storm. You got you to gotta choose to hold fast because everything else is trying to tear you apart. And I want to tell you, God's anointing is here for us. His spirit is with us. And if you'll trust him, he'll do miracles amongst us. He'll do miracles amongst you. He'll do miracles in your marriage. He'll do miracles in your family. He'll do miracles in this body of believers because God brought us together in covenant with one another. Isn't that awesome? We are in covenant with Jesus Christ. We are his bride. I love it. It's not about, you know, to be honest, it has very little to do with, with feeling in love or, you know, feeling like I'm still in love. And I had some things to read to you, but for the sake of time, I might not do that. But there are some 
people a lot smarter than myself who've studied this out and say, if you will walk love out, you'll begin to feel love. In fact, C.S. Lewis talked about it, and I'm going to probably misquote him a bit, but he talked about the Germans and the Nazis uh, during the Holocaust. And he said, initially, the Germans mistreated the Jews because they had a few reasons to hate them or they thought they did. So they did these terrible things. But the more they did these terrible things, the more of their hatred for these people grew. You ever wonder why civilized people like you and me could do such terrible things to other people? At first, somebody convinces you they're not human, it's okay. You need to do this. But the more they committed the hateful acts, the more hate grew in their hearts for those people. Love is even more powerful. If you will walk out love, and you will act in love and walk in love, love will grow in your heart. You'll find that you love people that you could not possibly have loved before when you begin to love them, when you begin to walk it out, when you begin to see the love of God made perfect in you. The Scripture talks about practicing it. And practicing doesn't mean trying until you get good at it. Practicing mean, means practically doing it. And I would encourage you today, whatever you don't feel, don't be led by your feelings. Be led by faith. And if you will love in faith, if you will join in faith, then the emotion will follow. Because fleeting emotions or feelings of being in love or romance... They don't last. They come, they go at different times. But love endures. Love never fails. It never fails. You go through periods of your life where you don't feel what you used to feel. But I know, and I've only, we've only been married six and a half years, but I've seen it in our marriage, and I've talked to people who've been married a lot longer than us, and they say this, we all feel the same thing, but they feel it greater than we've experienced even. But that is, the longer you do this, the more love changes and it grows richer and deeper and it's not based on that surface feeling anymore. It's based on something so much deeper. If you'll trust God in that, God will develop these things in you. There is no one you can't love. There's no one you can't forgive. There's no one you can't uh, see God work in as long as you're trusting him with your own heart. So I encourage you to do that today. And you know, whatever our stage in life, whatever you're here, I, I, I hope that you didn't hear this and, and heard condemnation. My prayer is that you heard this and heard hope. Amen. That you heard this and heard how much Jesus loves you and, and how much that, uh, you, that you couldn't have imagined you could have done this on your own, but he can do it through you. I would encourage you to expect miracles. I'll give you one story before we end. Um, there was a lady in our church. I told some of you this. Lady in our church in Loon Lake. She doesn't go to the, she, they've moved away, so you won't be able to figure out who it is. Um, but her husband was so far down the road. Everything, I, I have rarely, I, I would, I've never counseled anybody to leave that guy. But this guy, I mean, I, I came this close to saying leave that dude because he, he was doing some things that were like, no, you should not be with it. And it wasn't like physical abuse or anything. That's a different story. This was just, he was just really off the tracks. And she said, you know, I need you to pray with me. What should I do? And I heard the Spirit of God just say in that moment, this is not too far for me. So I just put my own thoughts to the side and I just prayed with her. We were having a New Year's Eve service and... Um, it was the Sunday before New Year's. It wasn't New Year's Eve, literally, but it was close. And it was a Sunday night, and we were all just praising God, and I opened my eyes, and I saw in the Spirit, because it wasn't really happening, but it was almost like it was, I saw her husband and her son, who was at the time about 12 or 13, and they weren't coming with her. I saw them standing next to her with their hands raised. And so I just told her, I said, all right, I opened my eyes and this is what I saw. And at that point, it was like the craziest thing you'd ever say. But she'd been believing for her husband. She'd been standing in faith for her husband. And it was going to take a major miracle, a major miracle. With that guy, within like three months, had gotten saved and was in church 
and was so radically on fire for God that he set up a truck at Meadow Lake with a sign that says, free prayer, waiting for people to come by so he could pray for them. (laughs) And her son started coming to church and got involved with the praise and worship team. And there was just such a dramatic turnaround. And you know, the funniest thing for her was that she just accepted it. She was a new believer. So for her, it was like, well, yeah, praise the Lord. For the rest of us, we're like, how'd that happen? <laughs> right? But it was God. And I credited that that woman chose to stay when she could have had a good reason to leave and none of us would have blamed her. I mean, I wouldn't have blamed her. But she chose to trust God. And he said, I'll do wonders among you. I'll do miracles among you. And she saw a miracle. She saw resurrection in her family. And I believe you can see resurrection in your family. If you and your husband or you and your wife are at a place where you're like, there's not a lot there left, we serve a resurrecting God that breathes life, prophesies to dead bones and they come to life. There's nothing too far for him. And whoever we are today, some of you are not married, some of you don't want to be married, and that's cool, that's fine. All of us here, that's cool, that's fine if you're not married right now. Like if, <laughs> if you're sitting there with your wife and you're saying, yeah, I don't want to be married, that's not cool, that's not fine. <laughs> but if you're single and you're saying, I'm good being single, praise the Lord. Let's all embrace the power of covenant and the power of the covenant of Jesus Christ through us, amen? We are meant for the glory of God. We're meant to display it. We're meant to show it. We're meant to show the world this is what God can do.